0: the Spirit is calling for us to step up, step in, be bolder, be more ourselves, and really realize that we can make a bigger difference than we thought. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
1: Today, I'm chatting with Lynn Twist, the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance and founder of the Soul of Money Institute. She's been a featured speaker for the United Nations Beijing Women's Conference State of the World Forum, and Synthesis Dialogues with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, among others. Lynn is the recipient of the prestigious Women of Distinction Award from the United Nations. Her most recent book, and what we're excited to focus on today, is Living a Committed Life, published in November 2022. My first question for Lynn was to define commitment.
0: Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways to talk about commitment, purpose, giving your word, really shaping your actions around something that you envision is your service to the world. And when I talk about commitment, I'm really talking about something that deep, that comes from the core of who you are. In many cases, it's a spiritual calling. For me, it certainly was and is where you actually take a stand with your energy, with your life, with your talent, your treasure to provide something for the world that you feel is your calling, your unique gifts are matched with the needs of the world.
1: I think as I read this, people will recognize glimmers of this in events of each of our lives, especially the more life experience you have. But in your introduction, you say, I came to see that I could live what I call a committed life, which is a life governed not by my desires, by my wants, or even by my needs, but rather what I'm committed to. And I discovered that commitment is not a burden, but a liberation. I was actually liberated by having a purpose larger than my own life. That's Mm -hmm. something we need to find meaning. Is that... Is that how we find meaning or one of the ways we find meaning?
0: Well, certainly it's not a formula for every single person to follow necessarily. But if it calls to you, if it speaks to you, yes, it. I think it really is. We sometimes spend so much energy in worrying and being upset about ourselves or being afraid or doubting ourselves or thinking we're not good enough or not tall enough or not young enough or not smart enough or all of those negative thoughts haunt all of us. But at the same time, we also have almost an infinite capacity to be of service to the world. And when you put your fears, your anxieties, your doubts about yourself in the foreground, that becomes your life. But when you put your commitments to make a difference with your life in the foreground, all those thoughts... They move to the background. They don't go away completely because we're still human, <laughs> but they're in the background and they don't bother us so much. In fact, it tones down the noise. And what's in the foreground is what, what a difference you can make, how you can be useful. And once you make that kind of commitment and put your focus on that, what you're committed to reaches back into your life and makes you into the person who can fulfill that commitment. It's not like you are that person first. Oh, I'm brilliant and smart, and I know exactly how to end world hunger, so I think I'll commit to that. No, I committed to end world hunger, and that commitment reached back and forged me, shaped me into the kind of person who could fulfill that kind of a bold and audacious commitment. So it's sort of the opposite of what we think. And I often think of some of the great heroes and heroines that we all love and and cherish and admire like Jane Goodall or Mahatma Gandhi or even Martin Luther King. And when you think about what they committed their life to, we sometimes feel, well, they were just born to be great. Right, right. I don't think so. I think they were born just like you and me. They took on a great mission and that great mission forged them into the kind of human being who could fulfill it. So that's really one of the messages of the book.
1: It seemed in reading the book that you had been prepared maybe by your religious upbringing to recognize those commitments and opportunities. Would you agree with that?
0: Uh, I have a background in Catholicism. I was raised as a Catholic. My my mother was uh, Catholic for her whole life. My father was a convert, and he was probably a better Catholic than my mom. He, he really understood it more deeply because he he chose it. My mother was born into it as I was. And when I was a little girl, there were all kinds of things about the church church, that the rules of the church, the kind of dogma of the church that I questioned and struggled with. But the depth of my faith was still there, um, my faith in God, my faith in the goodness of life. The I've always been a kind of person who some people would call an optimist. I'm a person who's who generates and gravitates towards possibility, or a possibilist, which is a word that Frankie Moore Lapay, a wonderful author friend of mine, made up. But it's I like that word, and so I always look for the good in something. I think when my father died, which happened very very suddenly, when I was turning 14 the day before my birthday. My father was one of these very charismatic, very amazing people. And when you're 13, 14 years old, and you're a young adolescent girl, you're often kind of in love with your dad. That's kind of where it starts. You you just adore your dad. And I, I, I adored mine. He was a musician. He was a band leader. It was during the big band era. He had an orchestra. He was just he hung the moon. He walked on water. He glowed in the dark. (laughs) You know, my dad was everything to me and I was a, I was very musical. And so we played two pianos together and I I wanted it to please him more than anything in the world. And then one night, a Sunday night, we all went to sleep healthy and well. The next morning we all woke up except for him. He died in his sleep at age 50 Mm. of a heart attack, no struggle, no pain, My mother was sleeping in the same bed. Uh, She looked at him in the morning and he looked so tired. So she thought she'd let him sleep. When she got us off to school and went back to wake him and touched him, he was cold. And so she was absolutely shocked. She was 46. She had four children. She was just absolutely in a state of shock. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know where the checkbooks were. She didn't know how to get up the safe deposit box. She didn't know if he had insurance. I mean, she was completely unprepared when we uh, were brought home from school. And she told us she was so overwhelmed. He was also a famous man. She was overwhelmed with press and the men in the orchestra and and not really knowing what to do. So we were sort of farmed out to friends because she, she really couldn't even be with us. I was with my friend Lizzie Lee, but where I really took refuge was with my Sunday school teacher. I went to public school, but I went to Sunday school and I was very religious at the time. So I went to my Sunday school teacher, whose name was Sister Benjamin. Okay, Sister ben- Benjamin just totally got me through my father's death mm. through prayer, through inner work, through silence, because I thought it was my fault that my father died. Most children do when they lose a parent, they don't know can't explain it, but they think they did something wrong. And so I became deeply religious, way more religious than I'd ever been after my father's death and started to going out on retreat at a retreat center. I went to mass every day. I, I really felt that God needed to forgive me. And so my faith got much, much deeper but I'll also say it was the beginning of really the beginning of my inner life. I don't know that I had one before then. I mean, maybe I did, but religion was more about following my parents' instructions and the instructions of the church than it was finding God within myself. The death of my father was a huge event in my life, but it was also a huge breakthrough in my life because it opened me up to an inner life that I didn't even know was there. And I was a a popular kid. I was, you know, I was really out there. So I hid my inner life from my friends and from my schoolmates. But even hiding it made it deeper. It was my precious, private relationship with God. Did you feel like you were chasing God during that time, trying to
1: find God, or that you were having those moments of being with God at that
0: time? It changed in the process, I think. Before my dad died, I was a good Catholic girl, I was confirmed and I went to confession and I did all the stuff you're supposed to do. But I remember being in in dissonance with some of it. When my friend Lizzie Lee was in her congregational school Christmas pageant and I wanted to go see her perform, I was told I couldn't go into a, a non-Catholic church. And that didn't make any sense to me. I thought God wouldn't care. You know, Whether I was in a congregational church or a Catholic church, I thought that was just really silly. I thought, no, it couldn't be true. So the, I was starting to argue, actually, by the time I was 13, 14, with the rules, the catechism rules of the faith. I may have been chasing God. I don't really know. But when my father died, I found God. I'm sure I did. And I found God here in my in my heart, in my life, in my soul. It wasn't in some location, it was in me and it was in life and it was in love. He or she or that expression that you and I are both calling God, source, that was my taproot, and I could find it anywhere because it was it was with me always. Boy,
1: finding that and being able to connect with that was one of the most beautiful parts I found in the beginning of your book, talking about being directed by source, which Mm -hmm. could sound like an outside thing but you're talking about something that's springing
0: up from inside. Yes, it's both and really because now I work with indigenous peoples of the Amazon and their what I'll call their faith is that they are of the earth, not living on the earth. They're not fighting for the earth, they are the earth fighting for itself. They're the instruments of life, and I see that as a very powerful way of looking at the source of it all. I feel like guided by source, yes, and I ask for guidance by source as if it's outside myself. And then I also feel that I'm the instrument of source, which is then being one with source, uh, if I can put it that way. So it's a kind of a both and experience for me now, and the natural world in all its magnificence and beauty and complexity and astonishing majesty has become a huge part of how I experience my relationship with God, source, the spiritual energy of the universe. After the 1984, 1985 famine in Ethiopia, where I was with people who, uh, mothers who had lost every one of their children to starvation, sitting in circle with them around a dry well, wailing and mourning the death, the starvation death of each one of their children. I was deeply connected to Source through the the grief and the incredible, uh, almost unconfrontable tragedy of losing all your children to starvation with those women. So I can see and think of moments in my life when I felt like I was absolutely one with source other times where i call out for guidance from source so it's it's both hand
1: the title of the book is living a committed life and in thinking of both for me and our listeners uh, i wonder if, if i could just read this you start with a quote from from doug Hammerschold who says uh, i don't know who or what put the question i don't know when it was put I don't even remember answering, but at some moment, I did answer yes to someone or something. And from that hour, I was certain that existence is meaningful and that, therefore, my life in self-surrender had a goal. As you speak with people, do they have those same moments that you had of suddenly feeling like, now I know what this particular purpose is?
0: one of the things that I love to do is create conditions for people to discover that. Mm. Almost like ecosystems that create the environment of consciousness and attention that one can feel and see and respond to what they're being called to be. And sometimes it's called to be rather than do. It's my my assertion, I'll say, or my understanding, or you could say my belief that life is given to us and that it's a gift. And uh, Brother David Stendhal-Rost, who's a a remarkable Benedictine monk and a a very great teacher for me and a a 96-year-old icon of gratefulness, he says very clearly, at least in his experience, that life is given to us. It's given to us so that we can give it. And blessings are given to us so that we can bless. What we receive is given to us so that we can give it. That's how I see life. Mm. And if you see it that way, then you realize that whatever talent and treasure you've been given is not something to question or doubt or worry about or try to fix. It's that that you've been given to contribute. And if you live that way, you know, I have this wonderful phrase I love to use called what you appreciate appreciates. And what you actually appreciate about what you've been given appreciates, not only as you appreciate it, but as you share it. And when we share the the talents and treasures that we have, even, even if it's just our empathy or our compassion or our humor or our lightheartedness or our kindness, it expands in the sharing of it. It's not like you give it away and then there's less. In in sharing it, it becomes more. What you contribute and what you focus on grows in the nourishment of your attention and your generosity. I think that we are all here for, I'd say, a reason. I, I like thinking that way, whether it's true or not. It empowers <laughs> me to think of that, you know, and that each one of us is unique and we have a contribution to make, or I, I think we wouldn't be here at this epic, epic, challenging, kind of amazing time in history. I think if you're born now, you have a role to play.
1: Maybe just deciding that it will be true is what makes it true.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and it's empowering to look at life that way, rather than you're an insignificant little speck on this planet. No, you're here at a time when it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. And you have a role to play. Maybe it's not a big role. It's just yours. It's your role, whatever that is. And if you play it, your life will have so much meaning. I like to create, as you asked in your question, conditions or ecosystems, uh, environments where people can discover their calling as I found mine because it's so fulfilling. And in finding it, discovering it and surrendering to it, there's enormous freedom and fulfillment.
1: I wonder if perhaps as an example, we could use what you talk about this awakening or this knowing that you were going to work on a particular project when you were listening to a talk with Werner Erhardt.
0: I was involved in something called the EST training, which has now become the Landmark Forum. And it was invented and created by a man named Werner Erhardt, who was a very controversial fellow but also in a brilliant and total genius, in my view, I was at an advisory board meeting for his organization. And this is way back there in the 1970s. And he announced to his advisory board that he was going to take on ending world hunger. And when he said ending world hunger, people were aghast. First of all, they thought it was not possible to end world hunger. They thought it was too bold and audacious. They thought it would kind of ruin this wonderful corporation that he had founded, which was quite successful at the time. And they were worried, and they were kind of arguing with this. But when I heard the phrase end world hunger, something happened, stirred in my soul. You know, in the Eastern tradition, it was like I had a Kundalini experience. Werner held up his hand and he said, We're going to address the front and the back side of the hand of hunger. The front side of the hand of hunger being malnutrition, malabsorptive hunger, starvation, the physical hunger that plagues our planet, where we it a place where we have enough food to feed everyone. Yet a billion people, most of them children under five, are going hungry every night and many of them starving to death. But we're not just going to address the front side of the hand of hunger. We're also going to address the back side of the hand of hunger, which is is related and is the same hunger. And that's the hunger for meaning, the hunger to make a difference with our life in the affluent world, the hunger to matter, the hunger to know who we are. These two hungers are one hunger, and we're going to address them together. When he said that, I don't think I even understood it, but I got it. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? I got it rather than I understood it. It just like, this went right into my soul. I, I knew what he was talking about was something that I was meant to do.
1: Some people would say, well, I do have a committed life. I attend my church regularly. I've got my family responsibilities. I show up for my career. I'm, I'm committed to making my house payment, all of that. But you're talking, I think, about something, not to get rid of any of that, but something big a bigger and a, a grander vision. And how does someone who has all those daily commitments and is perhaps raising children and or caretaker for someone else in their family find that grander vision in the midst of those other commitments?
0: There's not really a formula. It's more to listen for what is the longing of your soul. And it's not instead of the things that you're doing It's a context or a container that will have all of those things be in service of something way larger than your own life. For example, let's say you're a kindergarten teacher. You have two children of your own and you love teaching and you're married and it's a little bit of a struggle to pay the bills and you're kind of consumed with this, that, and the other thing and your lesson plans and this, that, and this misbehaving kid and the board of education and what the principal wants and all of those things, the natural problems with life and maybe your mother's ill and you have to take care of her on the side, et cetera. But if you look at your life as a, a context, what are you ultimately in service of? What are you ultimately being called to? to contribute on this planet, leaving it better than you found it. Maybe it's that you are going to be a kindergarten teacher that is so memorable and unforgettable for those children that they will feel so seen, so affirmed, so mirrored back with their own greatness and potential and possibility, that they will be some of the greatest global citizens that we need in the next 50 years. And you are going to parent your children with such depth of love and soul and creativity that they will take our challenges that we face now and meet them at a whole nother level. And you are going to be the kind of wife or husband that is, is always making that person understand how deeply loved they are and and how extraordinary there etc so that maybe your real mission in life is to be a mirror for people to feel their deepest most beautiful soulful gifts and make them available to the world and that with everything you do including struggling with the board of education and getting the the PTA to work better you're on a mission to mirror back to people their greatness for example and and that colors or is the theme or the through line through your whole life no matter what happens or for example you're a bus driver my husband when he went to business school in Chicago he always wanted to get to a certain corner in time for this bus driver named Joe because when he got on Joe's bus Joe is a big abundant in body and in spirit black man who would say Bill I've been waiting for you I'm so glad you made it today I want you to have a good day. You look (laughs) so handsome today. I love that shirt. Can you sit here right next to me in the front here? I'd love to have a conversation with you. And he was like that with everybody. And he made sure if you rode on his bus, you were going to have a good day. And if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you got on Joe's bus, by the time you got where you were going, you felt way better about yourself and about life. This is a guy who was committed to generate fields, and containers and contexts of happiness and joy and delight for people. And that kind of was his calling in life. And how he did it was by driving a bus. So it doesn't need to be you devote yourself to any world hunger and work in India and Bangladesh and Ethiopia like I did. It can be anything. Every single person is absolutely unique and you're born to fully express your gifts into the world. And everybody has a role to play. That's my view. Everybody has a role to play. And if you listen, the universe will guide you. There'll be a through line in your life like you've always wanted to provide an experience of beauty for people, or you've always defended the underdog, you've always been about justice, or you've always loved making sure every voice is heard in the room, you'll see that there's something about you, whoever you are, that's calling you to make a specific, unique, and very bold contribution to life through all the things that you're doing, rather than putting those aside And stepping out of that life and taking on some some bold commitment that's not already there. And I want people to step into life more now. Because I think the the earth, the world, uh, the spirit is calling for us to step up, step in, be bolder, be more ourselves. And really realize that we can make a bigger difference than we thought.
1: There's this important concept you talk about in the book about you really can't tackle some of these things yourself, you need to find your people. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it it doesn't even have to be a worldwide organization, although those do a lot of good, but you're talking about, it seems, sometimes just that small group who support each other. And you find each other because you're headed on that common mission.
0: Well, there's that wonderful quote from Margaret Mead. I won't get it quite right, but never doubt that a small group of people can change the world mm. because that's what has changed the world and that's what will change the world. And it's true. You start to attract like-minded or you might say like committed people. It's it's sort of miraculous. I feel very humbled by the commitments I've made. And when you're humbled like that, you also realize I can't do this by myself, but I want to participate I want to collaborate. I want to find people who have the same sense of alignment and and calling in their their life. And they start finding you and you start finding them. It's almost like you can recognize them walking down the street, It's, it's, it's really miraculous. And collaboration for me is really, really the next space of the human journey. We've done well with competition. It's brought us all kinds of amazing miracles cures for all kinds of diseases. It's it's brought us all kinds of economic prosperity. In some cases it's it's also been the cause of a lot of inequality and a lot of devastation because compensation to it in excess is can be really harmful and hurtful. Whereas collaboration Is really seems to be the name of the game now. It seems to be what we need to find with each other. If we actually want to survive, we need to find a common ground. We need to co-labor, co-operate, co-exist, find co-equal ways of partnering with each other. I think that's a really important part of any kind of a commitment. Even the word commitment has at its heart doing it together, communally. Every great mission has a a community of people at its heart. Somehow I think at this time in history, it's not going to be heroes and heroines singular. It's going to be communities of people that find their way together.
1: Thanks again to Lynn Twist of the Pachamama Alliance for speaking with me. Her new book is called Living a Committed Life, Finding Freedom and Fulfillment in a Purpose Larger Than Yourself from Barrett Kohler Publishers. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Austin Ball, Leah King, and Katrina Martinich. Our sound designers are Sam Clausen, Brandon Lewis, and Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways you can spread the word is leaving a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.